Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, your host. And we have a wonderful new edition here of the podcast. It, uh, it's a Ramdas talk back from 1976, actually in the middle of June. So, boy, oh boy, huh? Time flies. Uh, I'm calling this Motives for Spiritual Practices. Excellent, excellent talk. But before I get into it, just a couple of things. Um, of course, we always uh, like to prompt you all about 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity in Santa Cruz has these wonderful weekend workshops. And I saw one that really poked its head out at me. It's uh, and it's going to take place August fourth through 9th. and uh, it's called permission to put yourself first. And it, it join master coach and best-selling author Nancy Levin for a five-day exploration into the vital act of reclaiming selfish. How about that? Especially when I'm doing all these things about the movie of me. But here's something that uh, it suggests, and, and it's about how uh, one can get lost when one falls in love. You know how you get lost? You might start out anchored in your sense of self, but someone else's waves can throw you off course, and you subsume yourself into that other person's energy. So this is an interesting idea. Reclaim selfish. Uh, anyhow, go to 1440.org and take a look and uh, see if this is something that you're interested in. Of course, Frank Ostaseski, our great, great friend, he will be there as well, so take a look. Uh, and just briefly, I'm going to India with Saraswati and we're going to do a yatra following Ram Dass's footsteps up in the Himalayas where we were, where I was with him uh, and Krishnadas and others back in the day, going to the different temples and ashrams and staying in a beautiful ashram. And just go to nourishinglife.com slash yatra. And actually there's a couple of other trips that she's doing. One, uh, a wonderful woman's retreat in Rishikesh, and also a trip to Brindavan, Krishna's town. So go take a look at that. Let's see. Okay, so we're calling this Motives for Spiritual Practices. What I love about this is, you know, Ramdas talks about the motives that draw us to spiritual practices, and they have a lot to do. Uh, those motives with what we want to get out of these practices, like meditation. Um, you know, so, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's a reality that many of our motives, uh, they come out of our ego. We want to be less tense, less nervous, less unhappy, uh, we want peace, we want happiness, we want contentment, uh, we want power, control, mastery. Control your mind to be more effective. You see all those mindfulness commercials. 
And uh, the issue is that the structure of who you are, um, when you insert that, it, it uses the ego to give more control over the world around one. And, uh, and this is the kinds of motivations that get us at least to, to even think of starting to do any kind of practice. And, uh, and the good thing is, the, what one would call the horrible, or what Ramdas calls the horrible beauty, you get what you want. You get a new car, you get a partner, and you know you get all of the material stuff you get the uh a little bit of this boost of the ego because now you go wow i'm really happening now i can focus i can bring my mind to one point and so on uh so you get what you want but then you do have a new clarity that maybe sees through the getting what you want because uh, all these kind of motives, as Ramdas says, are in time, and they will pass. Um, hmm. Well, by the way, there's a fantastic Krishnamurti quote in this talk that uh, is just absolutely wonderful. Um, so, ultimately things do, they change. They absolutely change, no matter if the motives were perhaps a little bit more worldly. And just changing, you know, the furniture around the room, but that ego seems to be still running the show. So it's a matter of, of working on our psychological games in order, getting it in order before we really are ready for higher spiritual practices. And Ramdas says, sometimes our mouths are bigger than our bellies. Ain't that true? Uh, the practices that can awaken us, but because we are so caught, these practices that can awaken us um, are difficult because we are so caught in psychological stuff and ego trips, we merely take these and convert them to things around the support of the ego. And so the first thing that anyone's got to do, and which Ramdas exemplified over these many decades, is honesty. You get honest with yourself and get real. And, um, you know, just know that these practices, um, they, they absolutely work on you to really transform your inner uh, being. And uh, I love this line, the real compassion is to allow evolution to work. In other words, it's okay that we have screwy motivations uh, for doing these practices. And, and we can watch how those motivations evolve. Um, because the practices do work. Yeah, they do work. And uh, in this talk, he talks uh, about becoming a somebody before you become, you can become a nobody, which takes us 
into the realm of this new movie that we got going called Becoming Nobody, which is the arc of Ramdas's life and teachings. Wonderful movie. Debuted a couple of weeks ago in Maui at the Maui Film Festival. And uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. I went out there, and Ramdas and I went to... Uh, to the showing, it was like, I don't know, eight, 900 people in a beautiful theater and seeing it on a 50-foot screen, it was just marvelous. And uh, just so everybody knows, you go to becomingnobody.com and you'll be able to see the trailer and all of the different things about where this movie will be shown, which it will be in theater starting in September. So go take a look there. That's another little side to commercial, huh? But, uh, so here's this talk. I'm not going to go any further. It's, it's a wonderful talk um, that really gets at some, uh, an extraordinarily important thing, which is what are our motivations? And, of course, awareness and mindfulness plays a big role, not just motivations for the kind of practices that we do and why we're doing them, but also motivation for the, that self that seems to want to take over everything and express itself in me-me-ness, mini-me-ness. <laughs> so, um, and this is from, again, from June 76. It was at Roger Williams College in Bristol, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. He was really popping around in the day, right? So this is Ram Das here and now on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and uh, there's a whole host of wonderful podcasts and teachers. So uh, enjoy and we will see you next week. Namaste. So uh, we talked about these moments and that for some of you, the reason that you're here is because you've had these moments and they had a validity or a solidity or a reality or a connectedness that your rest of your life doesn't have. And you're attempting to convert figure to ground to make those the dominant theme. And in other words, you're here because of an experience you've had. But there are other beings who enter into spiritual practices for other motives, and some of you are here for these other motives as well. And the point that I, first point I have to make is that the motives that draw you to spiritual practices have a lot to do with what you're going to get out of the practice. And I'm going to particularly address the remarks this morning to meditation, mainly because I'm writing a book about it. <laughs> Because at the present time, meditation is becoming a very in thing in the culture. And it's now appropriate cocktail party conversation. And people have now meditation teachers and schools in the same way as they had psychoanalysts a few years ago. It's sort of what the in person would have. And the army teaches meditation and colleges have hundreds of courses in meditation 
and there are a number of mass market programs now assuming that the mass programs are very uh, sensitive from a um, motivational marketing point of view you can read how they gear their come on or their sales pitch or the way in which they market their product and you can hear what the reasons are why people meditate and for the most part in this society people are drawn to meditation either because of psychological problems that is they are tense nervous anxious unhappy lonely depressed and as a result they seek peace pleasure happiness contentment okay that's one large set of motivations for meditating and that includes part of you and part of your motivation no it doesn't demand that you be exclusively one or another of these categories you just have to honor in truth what your own motivation is the other largest category of, mo of meditators or people who are into the meditative practices are interested in uh, power, control, mastery, efficiency, effectiveness. Uh, learn to control your mind and be more effective. Get a better job, be able to control other people's minds, uh, be able to be more effective in your problem solving. Uh, programs like mind control for example um, and uh, most of the large mass programs are geared towards one or the other of these sets of motivations in people now you can see that in a way both of in view of what I said last night about the psychological makeup that both of these sets of motives are coming out of of ego function that is they are both designed to use spiritual practices in order to give the ego more control or gratification the structure you have of who you are I will use this tool in the same way as I would use a car to go to the market I will use meditation in order to give me more pleasure I will use meditation in order for me to have more control over the world around me. Okay, can you hear that? And that's primarily, that's all ego use of spiritual practices. Nothing wrong, this isn't judgment, I'm merely showing you what it's about. That almost all of the mass movement in meditation, which I won't call it a fad because it is something that's happening and it's, it has a certain depth to it, is primarily extension of ego uh, the most bizarre example that I've seen which uh, is just so exquisite is a uh, <laughs> I won't pick on her because one of the authors of that magazine is right here with us today um, but she didn't do this part of it on the back page of the magazine is a picture of a boy and a girl or a young man and a young woman in their early 20s I'd say middle 20s and she is looking sort of demure and coyly down and he's got 
standing next to her, and they're both very clean cut, and he has his hand gently approaching her breast, right? And um, on the opposite side of the page, there's a little, a little blurb in a box that says, through meditation, you will attract more partners, okay? Now, it turns out that's true, you see. Okay. That all of this is true. That's what's absolutely beautiful about it and horrible. I mean, you've got to appreciate the horrible beauty of this whole game. And if you were God, you couldn't have done it better okay, than God did it. It's so totally exquisite. Because whatever motivation you start with, it's like a huge vacuum, a huge sucking mouth dragging you in. Because if you did it for one motive... See, if you say, I will quiet my mind in order to become more powerful, because if I have a more spacious mind, I'll see more clearly how it all is. I won't be as caught in it all. Therefore, I'll be able to make decisions more effectively, and I'll be more powerful than the guy in the next desk. Okay? You'll get all that. That's true. You'll get the new Cadillac if that's what you want. But when you're driving the new Cadillac, you also have this new quieter mind to see through that one too. So the horror of the game of the spiritual journey is you always get what you want, but you, by the time you get it, you don't always want what you get. Okay, you see the predicament? Now, um, for example, you say, look, all I want is happiness. All right. So you meditate, and in the course of the meditation, you quiet your mind enough to see how you've been clinging to your own self-pity, unworthiness, and so on. You start to let it go, and you start to feel more happiness. But there's a hook in that one, too. The hook is in the beautiful story of the king who said to the wise men of a tribe, he was going to exterminate this minority group depends on which book you read it in, whether it's the Sufis or the Jews. It's a Middle Eastern minority group somehow. He's going to exterminate them the next morning, and he said to them, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a fighting chance. If overnight you can come up with one thing that every time I'm unhappy will make me happy, I won't kill you. So the wise men got together, and the people stood nervously outside the the hut in which the wise men were meeting. And all night long, the midnight oil burned, and the wise men studied the problem. And what could they give the king that when he was unhappy would make him happy? And finally, in the morning, they came before the king, and they had a little white pillow, and on the pillow was a ring. And they said, here, sire. And he took the ring, and he said, I don't see how this will work. And they said, oh, sire, we beg you, read the inscription inside. And he read the inscription, and the inscription said, and this too shall pass, right? which is obvious. It's all in time. It's all changing, a very profound thing. When you're unhappy, just wait. It'll go away. I mean, even if you die, it'll go away sooner or later. Right? It'll pass. And they had done what they promised. Right? The hook in it is, if he should happen to look inside the ring when he's happy, okay? See? that goes too. Okay? Because... The predicament is any experiential state, any experiential state, happy, unhappy, is in time and space, and it will pass. Okay? 
so that if your motives are for things that are in time, power, worldly success, fame, gratification, sense gratification, peace, contentment, any kind of emo experiential state, you're building your house on sand. Because you'll get it, but it won't do it. It won't be it, finally. But you don't know that till you get it. And the, 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 the out front thing I have to say to you is that most of you, most of us, because I've really had to do it a lot, most of us primarily have to get our psychological and life games in order before we are really ready for the higher spiritual practices. Often we want, it's like our mouths are bigger than our bellies. We want more than we're ready to have. And we take practices that could bring you to God or bring you to enlightenment. But because we are so caught in psychological stuff and ego trips, we merely take them and convert them into things around our ego. Like, look how good I am as a meditator. All right, we just convert them back into psychological stuff. And really, there are very few people who have their psychological scene so cooled out who are no longer needing to prove themselves, who have eaten their own unworthiness, who have just cooled out, when then they can begin to hear these, these higher motives for spiritual work, these higher poles, these higher desires. And the game is not to deny where you're at, because if you make believe that you have one set of motives when in fact you have another, that just slows the whole process down. And you begin to see that for yourself, and you begin to understand you can't stand your own hypocrisy. You've got to get straight, because honesty is one of the very simple rules of this game. You've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to be where you're at. If you say, look, I would love to go to God, but before I do, I know I want a good steak dinner. You say, oh, I can't want a steak dinner. I'm not the kind of person who wants a steak dinner. And so you push steak dinner under the rug. That steak dinner will carry through. And at the last moment, after 10,000 births, when you are this luminous being of just light forms shimmering on the Himalayas, and you're about to go into the beyond the beyond, there will be the steak dinner dragging you into another birth, okay? So don't figure you can push anything under the rug because it's not going to work. You won't be able to do it. Doesn't mean you have to do it all, but you have to at least honor it, acknowledge it, and be with it. Right. And the stages of this drama, like the other night I talked about Shila Panya Samadhi, the relation of wisdom, concentration, and purification. We're talking really about purification, cleaning up your game enough so you're ready for the higher climb up the mountain. So that most of the spiritual work that's being done in America today is in truth not spiritual, it's worldly. It is using practices that could be used for spiritual liberation, but it is using them for worldly ends. And if you are in the spiritual business, in the monkey business, you, uh, I, I, I can't resist, I'm sorry. Uh, you, uh, um, at first, I used to get furious about this, and I used to say, I've got to, you know, make a stand, because these beautiful methods that could liberate people 
society is taking something that could free them and they're using it to entrap themselves further. Right? And then I saw that I should have understood a little better because the exquisiteness of it is that it's you what you thought you wanted, but then you see that isn't exactly what you wanted at all. All right? And you've got to allow that step. That's the compassion to allow evolution to work as it works. Like we've had a culture in which people thought, if I have enough money, enough security, enough insurance policies, I have my kids in the good colleges, I have a fur coat and a winter home and a summer home and a da-da-da-da and two cars and chickens in every pot and the whole scene, I will be a happy person. And I will, ha I will have that feeling of those moments. I will have that feeling of being in perfect harmony, flow, at one, ah. And they get it all and it isn't. Right. And that, in a way, is the great sadness of a culture having the wrong myths. Or we wouldn't say wrong, but we would say myths that are worldly myths. They are myths that are taking people more and more into the expectation that that which is in time and space will gratify them. Even though Christ said, lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt. You see, these are all good Christians that do this, by the way. And good Jews, in which the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other God before me, and they have all made a God of their mind and of their material stuff. Right? And yet they all say, I am good Jews and good Christians. So you understand a lot of your frustration with religion is not that the religions don't have the thing in them, but it's that everybody is using them for another purpose. Okay? Is this all getting through? So it is better to do the practices from where you start, from where you are, and then let the practice happen, and it will take you through stage after stage. Because when you have completed doing things for the motivation of psychological uh, gratification or peace or calm or happiness or health or wealth or power or mastery or problem-solving ability or efficiency or whatever, then, when you are quiet enough or despairing enough, and that's a combination of both of them, there is a thing in Hinduism called viragya, which means the falling away of worldly desires. You sort of see through the fact that nothing you're going to be able to get that way is going to do the thing that it is that you're yearning for. You can't label what it is you're yearning for, but it's a pull that is very real. And you only begin to hear the pull in its purest form when it's not confused by all of the things you thought would do it. Now, let me just spell that out just a bit. You come along, you're pubescent, and you decide, wow, sex is the biggest thing that's come upon this earth. Well, that is it. That's the one that's going to do it for me. If I can get my sexual scene together, I am going to have that moment because the masturbatory experience and then the intercourse experience gives you a moment of that. It is a moment in which you flip out of your mind. It's a transcendent moment, the moment of orgasm. In fact, you can see the whole spiritual journey as orgasmic. So you get totally preoccupied with sex. In other words, you have identified this state you are, this way of being that is what you are yearning for, you have identified it with the method of getting there. And so you say, what I want is sex. 
It's like saying what I want is meditation versus what I want are the effects of sex or the effects of meditation. And because you're focusing on your method rather than the effects, like you say money, power, security, all that, those are methods. And you get fixated on the method and um, because of that you can't see the predicament that when you are going, if you're a skier and you're skiing down a hill, when you're in a perfect flow with the wind and the snow and the sun and the uh, angle of the hill and your skis are uh, waxed properly and your body is healthy and you're flowing down the hill, at that moment there is uh, a space. If you're a surfer, when you're in relation to the huge power of that wave, when you're in a certain way, you're in a space. If you're a, uh, a um, person involved in a sexual relationship, at the moment of orgasm, there is that space. If you are a cook and you've spent all day with gourmet magazine in one hand, cooking with one basil leaf and two drops of this special wine you got in South Italy and the whole thing, and you finally cooked this thing for 40 people, right? And you take the first bite, and it's just what you thought it was going to be, right? There's that space. It can be achievement. It can be, there are, in fact, everything. You've just been saving for a new car, right? You're going to get a rabbit, see? <laughs> and you've been working at the mill, and you've been saving your money, and finally, and you've gone and you've looked at all the ads, and you go in and you study all the cars, and you decide you want a purple one with yellow dots, and you with overdrive and underslung and third this and fourth that and special mirrors and you got the whole thing already and you go into the showroom and you pay your money and you get in the car and you drive down the street and you got it and there it is. There's the moment. Right? There it is. And see, then you can get hooked on the moment connected with new cars and you could spend the rest of your life, then you got to get a Rolls, you know, and it's got to go on and on. Like another car, another rush from a car. Or if you do it with a bicycle, then you've got to do it with a motor scooter, then you've got to do it with a motorcycle, and you've got to keep doing it bigger and faster, right? Because you're confusing the method with what that thing is, right? Once your house is in order, once you've psychologically cooled it out, you've got your ego, once you have become somebody is a way of saying it then you are ready to start the journey to become nobody. Right? If you're still busy trying to become somebody, forget it. Don't forget it, because all these methods will help you become somebody, but that isn't going to be the end of the journey. It's got to go that cycle. But it has been said in spiritual work, you've got to be somebody to become nobody. And a lot of people are busy becoming somebody, and all of... Western psychology is designed to help you become somebody. I mean, I remember when I was at Harvard, here Tim and I were busy learning how to become nobody, which we haven't been too successful yet, but next to us was Eric Erickson, who was teaching everybody how to become somebody. I mean, his thing was ego and identity and uh, uh, the stages of ego evolution and Dave Reisman and all these beings defining who you are all the time because psychology is the study of individual differences of somebodyness if you will somebodyness once you are somebody just comfortable with yourself you don't have to be a big somebody 
You just have to be comfortable with who you are. Then you're ready to become the next stage, which is the, the mystic part of it, which is what we are here for, supposedly. And the first motivation, the one that is most familiar to many of you, is just the one of the explorer, of just a kind of a fascination with what's in you, with who you are, with what it's all about, with where you... what else is possible. Suddenly you know that you've got it made in this society by all the rules of the game, but there's something more and you know it's there and you're fascinated to find out what it is. It's really fascination or exploratory zeal that is that first motivation. The deeper motivations of that higher level of motives is the beginning of the yearning for God or the sense of a higher self. Or you could say the pull, the pull of your return. You could call it the pull of the one. There are a lot of words, and all of these words aren't what it is. There's words like realization, enlightenment, freedom, um, coming to God, nirvana, Brahma, the Father. All of these words are describing something that is indescribable, and we're going to not describe it more later. But the pull, I'm talking specifically about motivation now, there starts to be a pull in human beings for a return. It's as if, if you take the Garden of Eden story, you're originally in a relation to everything in the universe where there are no separations, there's no boundary, there's no separate self, and then you ate the apple. You ate the apple. You ate the apple. And when you ate the apple, you then knew instead of being. You got a subject-object level. You came down into your intellect, if you will, and you knew the universe instead of being it, and you were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. You were thrown out of the perfect flow and the perfect harmony of all things. And then the game is to come back into that flow, not wiping out your intellect, not by any means, but not identifying with it either. That's the secret of it. This is not an anti-intellectual trip. It's not an anti-science trip. It is merely saying it all has its place, but it isn't necessarily the be-all, end-all of it. Okay, um, now every technique of meditation can be done from all these different levels of motivation and you will get different results and that's why when you read some books on meditation that lead to one state of affairs, you say, and then another that leads to another state of affairs, you get confused. And the confusion comes from the motivations of the people that are writing the books. Right. 
It's like in truth, I'll just say it the way it is, many of the mass movements are being run by people whose motivations are primarily worldly themselves. And a person who is primarily in the world cannot free another. Right? That's the way it boils down at this point. They may give lip service to some higher motives, but they don't really, they aren't them. Right? Because you ultimately only teach your being. You don't teach what you know, you teach what you are. Okay, now you're going to motiv meditate. And there are all these methods of meditation. You're already learning several of them this week. There are all these kinds of meditations. Which one are you going to do? Why, how do you know which ones there are? Right. One of the functions of the Hanuman Foundation that I feel is important is to apprise the population of the United States that there are more types of, there are more types of meditation than simply TM. Not the TM isn't good and useful. It is. It's a good meditation. Traditional meditation, use of mantra. We're going to do it tonight. But because it's only one way, and there are literally dozens of methods of meditation, and there are literally hundreds of retreat centers in the United States, and teachers, but nobody knows about most of them. So one of the things that we're doing this year is we are putting out a meditation guide, really. A guide to the facilities that are available, the strategies that are available, the ways in which you would sense and tune in to what is available to you and what might work for you. Because each of you has your own unique karmic predicament. And for each of you, at whatever stage you're at, there will be a meditation that will feel right on for you. Right. You may even hate it, but you'll know it's right on. Or you may love it, doesn't matter. Love and hate isn't what it's about. Now, very briefly, let me just give you a sense of these meditation strategies so you'll understand what your options are and, and start to have a framework to understand what's happening to you this week. Primarily now, I'm talking about working with your mind. The heart is in here, but it's going to be secondary for today. It'll be primary tomorrow in our discussions. The predicament you face is that, as I told you yesterday, your mind is created of, you have created a set of thought structures that are, in effect, a set of thought structures that you've created are like a prison. They are like a room in which you live that defines who you are and how the world is. And that set of thought structures, which you call your ego and your perceptions of the universe, has been thus far effective in keeping you alive and surviving. But it, the cost of the way in which it has been effective is is that it has limited your energy, it has limited the flow, it has limited your involvement with the universe. In other words, you paid a very high price for security. A very high price. It's as if you got a little cell for yourself, out there is the whole world, and you said, but I'll stay in the cell because at least I know where I am. And the walls of the cell are made up of your thought forms, of who I am and who I'm not. 
like you sit with somebody and they say, you say, um, if there's anything you can't say to me, say it. And you can see them have a model. I am somebody who would never say that. Right? And you just confront it right there and you look right in their eyes and you say, say it. And you see them having to confront the prison that their mind has made about who I am and who I'm not and what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Right? Now, there are boundaries in our game that are defined by civilization. You can't kill another person and so on. And we have all kinds of protective devices to allow people to remain civilized with one another when there's limited resources. But beyond that, you have imposed a set of models in your head that keep cutting you off from the immediate moment. If one thing, it just separates you one thought away. And the game of meditation is to extricate yourself from being totally identified or trapped by those thoughts. That's what the game of meditation is about. Very simple. And the strategies to do that Strategies to do that, A, put another set of thoughts in for the ones you had before. Substitute a set of thoughts that liberates you rather than a set of thoughts that entrap you. That's one strategy. Another is use one thought continuously like a drop of water to use as a focal point to begin to see all the rest of the thoughts around it so that the thoughts lose their control over you. For example, following your breath. Start to follow your breath. And the thought, my knee hurts. It's a thought that I can pick up from one or two minds. Okay. Through my psychic powers. Okay. My knee hurts. Okay, there's a thought. Now, either that thought has the same uh, reality, solidity, significance, importance as the breathing in, breathing out, or you have said to yourself, for 20 minutes, I am going to make the thought of breathing in and breathing out the dominant thought and every other thought I'm going to let go of. I've decided to play this game for these 20 minutes. It's all. The 21st minute, I can worry about the pain, but for now, I'm going to worry about the breath. So there's the breath going in and out, pain in the leg, ah, pain in the leg. Notice it. Go back to breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. I'm hungry. Okay. Thought. Once you sit over there, I'll feed you in 22 minutes. I'm busy. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. This will never work. Right? Thought. This will never work. See? Now, if you are undisciplined at that moment, you'll say, Jesus, maybe this won't work. But I read in this book that it would work. And if I tried it, well, I ought to do it now. And you go into a whole long, you know, it t the little thing just reached out and grabbed your awareness and took you and you went. You went. Here I go. Bye. Well, I wonder if it'll work. Will it work? Oh, it might work. I think it'll work. It's worked for other people. I'll read the stories of great saints. It worked for them. See? And you lost it completely. Right? And all you had to do, all you had to do, a lousy little thing, 20 minutes, you just had a breathing in, breathing out. It was so simple. But the minute you make the decision to follow that method of taking one point of focus, 
and making one thought, you're using one thought to loosen the hold of all the other thoughts. It's a strategy. Okay? So the first strategy I mentioned was you are substituting one set of thoughts for another set of thoughts. That is, you read the holy books, you read the scriptures, you read the words of enlightened beings, you do contemplative exercises on thought, thoughts, or on courage, or on love, or on compassion, or on truth. That's called contemplation and study. And it's built into most of the traditional religions. It says, fill your mind with stuff that allows you in Buddhism, it's called right thought and right understanding. It's part of the Eightfold Path. Fill your mind with the stuff that you can use that will make your perceptual universe different. Fill your mind with other thoughts. Pick a thought, which is called a primary object of meditation, and let all the rest of them come and go. All the rest of them come and go. It's the next strategy. Now that thought that you let as the primary object, it could be a candle flame. It's called tratak, focusing on an object out there. Or the, in Tibetan Buddhism, it would be called using a, um, a yantra. Uh, the one that's most familiar to you would be the mandala. Uh, these circular designs that look like they have four gates. And then you go in and in, and then there's a circle in the middle with certain work, printed stuff in there. And these are techniques for taking your consciousness. If you focus just on the mandala, your awareness will be brought in and in to one point and you'll let other stuff go. Right? There's more to the mandala than that we may talk about. So it could be sound, it could be mantra, repeating a word over and over again could do it. And you keep using the word as the focus or figure, and all the rest of your thoughts become ground so that the thoughts don't grab at you. The example I've used that most of you are very familiar with by now is what it's like when you wake up in the morning. Remember the stir thing? You wake up in the morning and you're just asleep and you just start to come into consciousness. And you're in the middle of the dream you were just dreaming, but the alarm clock is ringing and the thoughts start. I got to turn off that alarm clock. What was I just dreaming? I don't want to forget the dream, but I got to turn off the alarm clock. Oh God, I got to go to the bathroom. Oh, it's warm in bed. Goddamn alarm clock. Maybe I can turn off the alarm clock without forgetting the dream. Let me remember part of the dream. Oh, the dream. When I'm back in the... Oh. Hey, where is that place? Do I smell coffee? God, I gotta go to the bathroom. I could stay in bed five minutes longer. What was that dream? I gotta do my laundry today. What's that noise outside? Oh, it's right, it's the milkman. Right. Yeah. God, it's warm here. What was that dream? Okay. And it starts, and your mind is just going brrrr, just little bits, and it goes faster and faster until pretty soon you're walking down the street. Look at her. Look at that. I'm hungry. I got to get to work. I didn't do this. Oh, da, da. You know, my foot hurts. I got to get my shoes fixed. You know, and on and on. Just brrr, and your mind is just grab, 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 and it's just pulling and everything that comes along. And that's why when you're here silent, see, I feed it like this for an hour with brrr stuff, and then 
you go out, but some of you can't stand not feeding it enough, and you got to look for ways to feed it more and more. It's like this huge mouth that's got to be fed all the time. More thoughts, more stimulation. I want more, more. You know? All the senses are feeding in the same way. Senses and thoughts, senses and thoughts, senses and thoughts. Smoke it, eat it, think it, remember it, plan it, you know, touch it, caress it, look at it. Right? Listen to it. Birds? Ah. One point. Now that one pointedness is part of um, well, there are two levels of the one pointedness. I think I could perhaps it'll work this way. The lower level is what would be called the witness. It's discussed in Uspensky's writings, which are he was a student of Grigev, the Russian. Meshugana, <laughs> philosopher, mystic. And what that is based on is breaking what's called fascination. If you have there's you as the experiencer and there's the experience, you the reader and the book you're reading, you the eater and the food you're eating. You, the lover, and the object you're loving. There's two. And as long as there's two, there is involvement. There is identification and getting lost in it, being the experiencer of the experience. What you do in the witness is you add a third component into the situation. To break the, bond, the bond of fascination, you add a third thing in. And that third thing could be what's called self-remembering. In other words, I am walking down the street looking in a window. There is looking in the window, there's the window, there's the person looking in the window, and then there is the person remembering the situation that there is somebody looking in the window. Okay? What you'd call it is self-consciousness in the way we talk about it. And you add a third component into your life. You could add into it um, as if you've got a guide or a, an imaginary guru or somebody there that's just watching, not judging. This is not the judge. It's not the superego. It's not the superego. It is merely noticing. It is a noticer of the scene. It is, you are noticing your own predicament, self-remembering. You're breaking the bond of those two by adding a third thing in. And Ospensky describes beautifully, he's walking down the street and he's decided to make this exercise of self-remembering and he says, I am walking down the street. I am looking in a store window. I am proceeding. I am planning to get home to lunch at 12.20. I am looking at my watch. Right? I am doing down. And then he comes to his tobacco store and he suddenly remembers that he's got to get a certain kind of tobacco that he likes. And he completely forgets self-remembering, goes in, buys the tobacco. He's busy smoking the tobacco, going home. It isn't for two days that he suddenly remembers, two days later, that he was doing that exercise and that he couldn't keep it going because he forgot, because he got lost. His desire grabbed him and he went back into being the experiencer or the smoker or the collector and couldn't keep the self-remembering going. Right? 
So this method of witnessing or self-remembering is this first strategy of getting one thing in there. The other level of it, however, which is what the Vipassana is about, is to have a point of, ob a point of primary object of meditation, which then becomes just another thought. In other words, ultimately you turn your awareness on the object of meditation because even focusing on that one thought is still, or that self-consciousness finally has to go too. The best way I can give you a feeling for that is through the work of Ramana Maharshi in the what's called the Vichara Atma, or Who Am I? He says it's all very simple. You want to get enlightened, just ask, Who am I? Sit down and have the discipline to follow in to see who you are. Who am I? You go and you say, Who am I? I am not my legs. Then experience your legs as objects. You can feel them. They're there, they're sitting there, down there in pain and whatever. There's these legs. And when you've got them out there and you're in here, okay, then you say, I am not my arms. Got the arms out there and you're in here. I am not my torso. Pretty soon you can see the torso. You've got the whole thing. It's there and you're here. I am not my senses. And then you watch your ears here and your eyes see and your nose smell and your tongue taste. Then you do I am not my internal organs. And you feel them all as there and you're here. And then you do the organs of action. I am not the moving, I'm not the sphincter, I'm not my anal sphincter, I'm, oh, it's the tongue, the genitals, you got all these things you're not, there's a whole list of them, you're not. And you get finally down to the last one, which is, I am not this thought. Which thought is that? The thought of I, I am not. See, you were finally standing, you had gone all the way back to this I that was watching all the rest of it. It was watching body, senses, organs, everything. That's when you're in the meditative state, when you have dropped the last place to hold on. So that these businesses of one-pointedness of mind are merely techniques to quiet you down by getting you out of that what am I thinking, remember, plan, sense, etc., down to one point, then you're in one point, then you turn in on that one point, then you enter into the meditative space. And by going in and out of different realities, you loosen the whole of one reality or another. Okay? These are all techniques of meditation. Prayer is meditation. Devotion to God is meditation. This is a quotation from Krishnamurti, and he's going to have a lot to say about everything we're doing this week. And we'll let him say it a little later in the week. In the light of silence, all problems are dissolved. This light is not born of the ancient movement of thought. It is not lit by time nor by any action of will. It comes about in meditation. It's not a personal search for pleasure. Pleasure is always separative and dividing. In meditation, the dividing line between you and me disappears. 
in it the light of silence destroys the knowledge of me. The me can be studied indefinitely for it varies from day to day but its reach is always limited however extensive it is thought to be. Silence is freedom. Meditation is the ending of the word. Silence is not induced by a word, the word being thought. Action out of silence is entirely different than action born of the word. Right there it is. Action out of silence. Meditation is the freeing of the mind from all symbols, images, and remembrances. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.